We are uh, in week two of our series, Marriage, Sex, Gospel, and today is essentially a continuation of the first week. Week one, if you were here, I didn't really get into a lot of practical stuff about marriage, sex, relationships, etc. I mainly wanted to kind of paint a picture of what a biblical vision of marriage looks like, and today I want to paint a picture uh, of a biblical vision of, of sex. Um, and so it's really kind of like part one and part two. It should have been one kind of larger sermon, but we just couldn't do it for time. And so in order to set this up properly, I just want to briefly review what we did last week so we can all be on the same page. It'll be quick. If you were here, it'll be a quick review. If you weren't here, um, listen online to the rest of it because everything's kind of working hand in hand together. But last week, we talked about how in creation... God is creating with a rhyme and a reason, an order and a harmony, which each, with each consecutive day in creation, God is introducing functionally different equal opposites into the created order. Functionally different equal opposites sounds like a big confusing term or string of words, but it's essentially this. God puts forth pairs. There's day, night, sun, moon, water, land, fish, birds, and they're always put together side by side. It's to kind of show that God is introducing two distinct things with their own distinct function, but they are equal and meant to come together to serve a purpose that ultimately benefits humanity. They each have their own particular purpose, function, and they each have their own particular beauty. So there is a particular beauty in the sunset. It's amazing. It's gorgeous. You want to pause time and just enjoy it. Um, but as the sun sets, it's not as if beauty disappears, disappears altogether. When the sun sets, a different particular beauty begins. The night sky, and if you've ever been camping, r- removed from city lights, you look up in the night sky and it's gorgeous. Like, we forget how beautiful the night sky is. I mean, there's just so much, so much up there. It's this like majestic, transcendent experience. Uh, Joe, it sounds like I might be feeding back just a little bit. There's a slow bass kind of rumble, although I appreciate kind of that background bass. You hear it? It's kind of like a... It's kind of a good effect sometimes, but more, let's put that back on when it starts to the convicting parts. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so... um, And so at the kind of pinnacle of this story of the creation story, God introduces the last pair of functionally different equal opposites, men and women, male, female, and they're created in his image. And like every other functionally different equal opposite in the created order, they're they're meant to come together to form a, a union, a oneness. And that's embodied in the act of sex. It's explained in Genesis chapter 2, 24 through 25. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There's no longer I or me. Or, I mean, there's no longer kind of this, this I or me. It's just there's us and there's we. There's, there's this fusion together of two distinct, functionally different equal opposites, but they come together to form this powerful union. And again, it's embodied in the act of sex. And it's more than just a physical act in the biblical worldview. It's a physical kind of spiritual union. Last week, again, we talked about when people follow this outline, when men and women commit to lifelong monogamy, the world flourishes. 
Um, when men and women commit to each other to say, I am only going to have sex with you and you alone for the rest of my life, our children will grow up in this type of household where there's a loving mother and a loving father committed to each other forever, committed to the, to the kids, the world is a better place. Now again, last week we talked about how I am fully aware that this room is filled with a diverse crowd. There are people who are on their first marriages, people who are in the second or third, people who have divorced, people who have widowed, people who are single, people who don't wanna be single, people who are single and wanna be single, all kinds of different people. And we wanna be as gracious as we can to wherever we're at in life. Whatever your mistakes, your shortcomings are, whatever failures are in your past, God's grace is great, it's sufficient, it's amazing, and it's powerful. But in addition to showing grace, we also want to clearly point to God's ideal standard, what he's laid out. Um, Because when human beings strive for that, the world flourishes. And you can go back and listen to week one. We talked a lot about that. And that's sort of the, the, the biblical vision for marriage. Now, what I'd like to talk about today is a biblical vision of sex. And I'd like to explore the thoughts that we have about sex, why we think those thoughts about sex, how we got some of those thoughts about sex, and then hopefully show how we can align those thoughts about sex with what the Bible is actually saying and and teaching us. And what I mean about thoughts about sex is not simply like easy to articulate thoughts. Um, I'm talking about what's kind of deep down maybe even subconscious. So there are some thoughts that are easy that we have, easy to articulate. Um, For instance, like a dude who's just got married, uh, he waited to have sex before he got married, and the wedding ceremony's over, everyone's eating, having a good time, and he's enjoying the company, he's enjoying the family, um, but he's probably going, okay, let's let's just wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. (laughs) You know, we, 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 all, we all know what's going on here. Um, so that's an easy to articulate kind of thought about sex. What I'm concerned with today is the, the hard and difficult to articulate. Things that are so buried into us that they, they, aim, they may actually be functioning on a subconscious level. Things that we, play, we, we pick up from the many narratives in our culture and our upbringing and our family past that kind of shape how we think. I'll give you another example of like a subconscious uh, thought about sex. Let's take a couple who did wait to have sex before they were married, and they did everything God's way, they they did everything by the book, and now it's, it's gonna be great, it's their wedding night, they have sex for the first time with each other, and it's, it's good. I mean, it's, it's a little awkward because they're, they're trying things out for the first time, but it's, it's relatively a, gr- a good experience, a, a, an incredible kind of bringing together of two people. But within 15 to 20 minutes, all of a sudden, um, they start feeling shame. Like out of nowhere, they just start feeling shame. And you're going like, why, why are you feeling shame after the act of sex? Um, you did everything by the book. There's no like religious guilt you should be feeling, you just, you just feel shame after the act of sex. Usually, in those cases, and that's very common, by the way, very common, usually there is some sort of unconscious thought or belief that's buried in that person's mind and heart 
that, that, that is creating things. And it's, again, very hard to articulate how it got there and why it's there. So what I want to do today is explore a little bit about our culture's thoughts about sex and demonstrate a little bit about where they came from and how we can hopefully realign them with the biblical vision of sexuality. Now to do that, we have to go again to the Genesis account and look at when God created us, what was he doing, why was he doing it? Um, And what does the text say about who we are as human beings? Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all of the earth and over every creepy thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, in your Bible, this is centered because this is Hebrew poetry. So at the very beginning of the Bible, there's a poem about human beings being made in the image of God. What's unique to this document, being a document of the ancient Near Eastern world, is that there's an emphasis, a poetic emphasis, on the fact that both men and women are made in the image of God. So he created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Again, functionally different equal opposites designed to come together. The word image um, is of utmost importance. What does it mean when the Bible says men and women are made in the image of God? If you were brought up in the church world, uh, you've probably heard things like being made in the image of God means you have intrinsic and innate value. It means that um, you're a morally responsible creature, you're an ethical creature, you're a rational creature. And all of those things, things are true to, to that word image. However, in its kind of ancient context, there was more primary meaning to that, more things that were more primary in its definition. So those other things are true, but they're kind of on, on the side. Image in the world of the Bible primarily meant three things. Um, One, it had to do with kings and pharaohs. So if you're a pharaoh of Egypt and um, you wanted more grain production and you ordered more more hours of work from from the people, uh, if the people challenged you and said, like, who are you, pharaoh, to to put these, these burdens on us? You can't just go deciding this for all the people. The pharaoh would not only say, well, I'm pharaoh, that's what you have to do. The pharaoh would say, I am the image of God on earth. I am his mouthpiece. I am the image of Ra. I speak for him. So image has to do with authority. When people claim to be made in the image of a God, it meant you had the authority from them. So one thing the Bible is doing was radically subverting the thought about images because that was a claim that only Pharaoh would make or the elite or the nobles. But the Bible starts off with saying, everybody bears this royal stamp. The other thing image meant is it had to do with idols. If you were in the ancient kind of world and you went to a temple, and a temple to, let's say, a goddess of beauty, inside the, the, the temple, in the most sacred place, there was a little kind of statue. And that's the statue that represented the goddess of beauty. Now, the ancient people knew that that statue actually wasn't a god, but the statue stood 
as a representative of that God, and it was said that when that statue is there, the real presence of that God or goddess, which is unseen, is in and around that idol. So image has to do with presence. First, it had to do with authority. Second, it had to do with presence. The third thing image meant in the kind of ancient world um, has to do with will and law. So if you're in the Roman world, uh, during the peak of the Roman Empire, you would know that Caesar would put statues of himself all throughout the Roman Empire. And the reason for that was, is even though Caesar was in Rome, he wanted everyone to know by placing his image around the empire, that the will and law of Caesar was done there too. So there's statues of Caesar all the way on the shores of Spain, so that when sailors would come in from the ocean, the first thing they would see is a giant statue of Caesar. It was a way to tell those sailors that make no mistake about it, even though Caesar's back there in Rome, his capital, his will and his law is done here as well. So you put kind of those, those three things together and, and a picture begins to emerge. Image, being made in the image of God, has to do with having the authority of God, having um, symbolic representation of that person, and it has to do with people doing the will and law of the one they are made in the image of. So insert that back into Genesis. Human beings are made in the image of God. So therefore, you should expect them to have authority to rule and govern where they've been placed. They also stand as representatives. When you see that person, it should point you to the, the God behind the image. And third, it has to do with doing the will of that God in your place as he does in his place. Now, look at the next verse, and you can see how when you lay all those things out, that's exactly what Genesis is trying to communicate. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over it, over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God tells humans, you are put here on earth to bear my image, to point back to me, to do my will on earth as it is in heaven, to rule, to manage, and to govern in a way on earth that reflects my goodness in heaven. Now the first command tied up with image of God is the command to be fruitful and to multiply. Every young college student's favorite Bible verse. It's like, man, I got, I got that tattooed. Maybe be fruitful and multiply. It's my favorite Bible verse. Immediately, as image of God is introduced, God then tells people to, to make babies, have kids. Why? Because Adam and Eve were put in the Garden of Eden to be image bearers to do the will of God in that garden as God does in heaven. And they were to cultivate that garden and govern and manage it in a way that God designed. But God didn't just want a garden in Eden. He wanted a whole earth, all of it, to be filled with his image bearers, subduing it and cultivating it for the goodness of God. 
Now, we may get to this later in the series, but this is where a theology of children should begin. And I'll just say this as quick as possible, because however, however I'm going to say it, there's going to be people who hear what I'm saying wrong and will be upset. I'm going to do it anyway, because hopefully it'll be a minority, but a small amount, the majority will get it. The vast majority of young people, even Christians, even Christian young people, talk about family and having kids in ways that are unbiblical. They talk about family and kids primarily through the lens of selfishness, about what's best for me, what's most comfortable for me, and um, you know, I gotta get this in line, this in line, this in line, and this in line, and when everything's perfectly in line, then I will be ready to, to have kids. If anyone has ever had kids, they will tell you, you're never ready to have that first kid. You're never gonna be ready. A human being will grow inside of your body. It will find its nourishment from eating off your resources. It will come out of you in a painful way. You're not ready. Now, what I'm afraid of is that some people will be like, yeah, I just learned like, you know, let's just, hey babe, we've been dating for a month. We're, we're, we're 18, let's get married and start having kids. That's what I heard in this sermon. I am not saying planning, thinking through things, waiting, wanting to have time as husband and wife before having kids. Any of that stuff is wrong. But I'm telling you, I'm hearing more and more people talk through the lens of selfishness than through a lens of a biblical theology of children and family. So that's where God begins this thing to be fruitful and to multiply. Now, here's a very, very important question. When does God give the command to be fruitful and multiply? Is it after the fall and sin enter into the world or before the fall and sin enter into the world? It's before. Now, this is where we get into like unconscious thoughts because a big part of uh, biblical Christianity, biblical history has picked up on this idea that... um, Sex was introduced to humanity after the fall. Um, And the reason for that is immediately after the fall, then it says, and then um, Adam knew his wife Eve, and they they had Cain and Abel. And so they go, okay, that's when Adam and Eve first have sex. Now, I don't know when they first had sex, and the Bible doesn't care about that. What the Bible cares about is that the command to be fruitful and to multiply and for two people to come together in sexual union and become one flesh, that happens before sin and the fall. The reason why this is critical is if you think it happens after, then sex is primarily a product of the fall, a consequence of sin, and you do it because God wants you to have kids but sex is just this sort of necessary evil. If you think it happens before the fall, you think sex was created by God as this beautiful, amazing thing as a part of his good and perfect created world. And you're going like, hey man, I've never even thought that. I've never even thought about that question, so that's not affecting the way I think about sex. It doesn't affect necessarily you individually, but you need to know that the people before you and the people before them and the people before them for hundreds of years thought in certain categories. And one of the categories that was, the, the, actually the larger category, was that sex is sort of like an appetite and a desire of the flesh, 
and the flesh is sinful and wrong, and so you have that appetite, but you, you don't want to, you don't want to, you know, throw more wood on that fire. You want to suppress that appetite, and if you're going to have sex, you're doing it primarily to have kids because God like kid, God's like kids still. Jesus says, "Let the kids come to me." So you got to have sex, and so. A history of sex, and this is an oversimplification, but will have people either leaning in one direction or another. Some people will think sex is here primarily and solely or solely for procreation, for making babies. Sex is a part of the fall. It's sinful. God doesn't like it, um, but uh, you got to do it because you want to have a family. And sex becomes all about procreation. On the other end, and this has typically been outside of the Christian framework, uh, sex is all about pleasure and pleasure alone. Um, and currently, right now in our culture, you see that playing out. I mean, li- listen to, to, to the songs of our day. What are we singing over and over and over again? It's all about the, like, the magical pleasures of sex. Um, and so much that people kind of, they downplay having kids and procreation and all of that stuff and family and just want to create sex as an experience independent of, of kind of procreation having kids. The, the kind of biblical vision that is being laid out in scripture, and like most things, is never an extreme one or the other. God introduces sex as a part of his good creation tells people to be fruitful and multiply, introduces lifelong monogamy, and then, of course, the fall happens and there's consequences. Hence, every single person in this room is sexually broken. We're we're all just messed up. We're all, like, just horribly messed up with this stuff. And so you have to understand that these categories have shaped the way we think. And for some of you, you grew up in a church context where even though no one ever said it like explicitly, sex was seen as a bad thing, a shameful thing. Human bodies actually kind of have like a shame value to them. In our first John series, we introduced a word called Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is an old philosophy that peeks its head into Christianity every so often. It's a complex idea, but simply said, Gnosticism is a philosophy that says the material world, flesh and bone and skin, is bad. Everything in the physical material world, that's bad, and the spiritual realm is what's good. And Christians have let some of that philosophy come in and shape the way they think. That is why... um, Many times, and depending upon if you grew up in a church, there's many churches that, again, even if it was never articulated, you grew up kind of thinking sex, your sexual desires are bad and evil. You felt bad for having sexual desires. You um, felt dirty and shameful about your body. People get married for the first time. They don't even have sex before they're married, but yet after sex, they feel shame because these thoughts have shaped how we talk about it. And so sex is like, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, you don't want to indulge too much. You know, God, God's okay with it, but he's okay with it if it's for having kids. But don't, don't feed those desires too much because it'll get out of hand. There's books um, that I have, collect, collect some um, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 
90s. You're not seeing too much talk of this now, but there still is some. But uh, it was stand, 40 years ago, this was standard kind of Christian talk. Um, when you have sex, as a, married, as a married couple, like do it in the dark and make it as quick as possible. Uh, you don't, you don't want to have too much pleasure because that's going to arouse all of these feelings and that's the flesh. And you don't want to arouse the flesh. The flesh is bad. Um, and all the while, like, that is rooted in a non-biblical thought. I mean, think about this for a moment. God creates sex before the fall. He creates it as a part of his good creation and he put, he put, there's places on your body that give you more pleasure when touched romantically than others. Like, they stimulate you. There are pleasure points. And it wasn't just like by accident. There is like a complicated, hundreds of millions of like microscopic things that we, we barely even know how to articulate. Nerve endings that are working together in perfect harmony to give you pleasure. God didn't make a mistake with that. It's not a mistake. On the other end, um, secular culture just wants to make sex all about pleasure and pleasure alone. They will say, hey, look, those desires that you have in the flesh, that's who you are. You know, your basic animal instincts that's, that's, that's who are you, are you as a person, so you should indulge those. Why, why kind of oppress all these natural feelings you have? You should have sex in whatever way that makes you happy, in whatever way fulfills you, whatever floats your boat. I'm, who am I to judge? Have sex whatever way you want, whenever you want, because it's not going to have any real consequence on your spirit or your soul, even if you have one. You see how that's sort of like a, a reverse Gnosticism? It now says like, the, all there is is the body, so just indulge in it. There was a song like, when I was in high school, it went like this. You and me, baby, ain't nothing but mammals, so let's do it like they do on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> Top 10 hit. <laughs> but that perfectly embodies the sexual ethic of the day. We're just animals. We're just animals. So don't throw all these other outside restrictions on us. And what I'd like to do is just show you again briefly how the Bible never pits these at odds with one another. Sex is given by God as a gift. It's for pleasure. Um, it is not something you should enter into going, hey, I, we just let's have sex as fast as possible and get this over with and then we'll pray that you're pregnant. Like, it's more than that. It's made for pleasure. But it also, is a, it, it also was created so that you can fulfill the command of God by creating families that have lifelong monogamy, raising little image bearers to fill the world and manage and govern it in a way that reflects the glory and goodness of God. And when those things, two things go hand in hand, you get a biblical vision of, of, of sexuality. Now, uh, Few verses. There are tons. There are tons. So some of you be like, I can't believe he, he showed that at church. This is just the Bible. It's just the Bible. You, can, you get mad at God, not me. It's just the Bible. It's all in the Bible. Uh, and I'm not even picking like the most sexually explicit one. I'm picking safe ones, really. I'm only giving you one Song of Solomon section. One. 
And I'm giving you a nice part of that, a nice part of it. But my point is this. I want to briefly demonstrate how the Bible shows sex is not only for baby making, as Genesis commands, that God has designed us to enjoy our bodies. It's not a shameful act. We are meant to enjoy our spouse's bodies. It's Proverbs. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely, dear, graceful doe. Here's the context. Uh, The wisdom literature is saying this to a man. He's going, um, although there's lots of women out there and you might be tempted to go chasing after those women, you need to be faithful to the, they call it the the wife of your youth. Basically, it's a phrase meaning your first wife, your first and only legitimate marriage. That is the one you stick in for the rest of your life. Don't go chasing other women. So it's let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. There's a new favorite Bible verse too. May you always be filled with delight in the breast of your wife. It's a command in the Bible. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. So you go home. If you're, if you're married, if you're married, <laughs> this, this, if, wife of your you just sit back and, you know, what are you doing today? Well, I'm just doing what God wants me to do, you know? I'm a godly man. I'm a godly man. I follow scripture. Listen to that phrase, be intoxicated always in her love. There's romance, attraction. This is beautiful. Song of Solomon 7. This is a safe one. Don't worry. It's not, I mean, it, it's a little weird, but um, Song of Solomon is a book about marriage, romance, sex, and and a lot of other stuff. Um, But this is a description that a man is giving about the beauty of his wife. And I want you to see how he describes describes the the love of his life. It's not just um, like you're a godly woman, which is true and of utmost importance, but he's actually describing the beauty of her body. And God records this in his word. How beautiful are your feet and sandals. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that, lacks, that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, really quick, uh, this is old poetry that doesn't necessarily translate well. You just need to know that in its day, this is like top-notch ro- romantic stuff right here. But dudes, like, you pro- it's probably not safe to like, as you're, you know, you're going home tonight, it's like, man, we just want to do what we learned at church today. I want to delight. And uh, girl, your belly is like, you know, a heap of wheat to me, man. It's just like, it's looking good. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is the best one. Girl, girl, your nose is like the Tower of Lebanon, which looks to San Martin. 
Your head crowns you like caramel and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and how pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Do you see this, though? It's, it's sensual. The biblical vision for sex is there's pleasure and there's procreation and there's lifelong commitment for the betterment and flourishing of humanity. You've got to have all those pieces together, otherwise you're going to, go, going to go off the tracks. Here's where the Bible actually commands you to have sex with your spouse. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. First off, the Bible is basically saying that the husband has to give sexual rights to his wife. Now notice what's interesting what Paul does. He leads with the dude doing that for the woman, and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of control. Powerful words. If you're a husband... Your wife does not, I mean, your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your wife. And if, if you're a wife, your body is not your own. It belongs to your husband. You need to know how radical this statement was in Paul's day. Men would have been laughing at this. I mean, we might just take it as standard, but for the most part in human history and in most cultures, the wife belonged to the husband for sure. She was his possession but no one was saying anything as crazy as, oh yeah, but um, oh husbands, your body doesn't belong to you, it belongs to your wife. That is powerful. It was radical for its time. I'm telling you, this would have been laughable. But Paul insists you do not belong to yourself, you belong to each other. Now this verse has been abused by people, and so I'm not, I'm not advocating any of that. There's been... Um, I mean, primarily men, I'm sure it happens both ways, but primarily um, abusive men who kind of use Bible verses to, to you know, demand sex from their wife whenever, wherever, um, in an abusive way. And you have to put all of these things together. Husbands are told to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and so you, you, all, you can't just take one puzzle piece. You have to get the full picture. But there's a beauty to this. Your body does not belong to you. It belongs to your spouse. In this time, people would often fast from food uh, and from sex, which is kind of unique. Not too many people do that today who are married, um, but it was a common practice. And so Paul's last piece of advice is like, look, it's okay if you're going to uh, spend a month fasting uh, from sex from one another and you're going to be praying during that time. But like, he goes, just make sure to come back together and have sex, be- you know, because the devil's going to get you if you don't. He- There's temptation. It's very practical. Essentially, what Paul sets up is, and we've been talking about this in the previous week, he pits the other-centered ethic versus the self-centered ethic. And what he's saying is when two people are married, if if they actually learn to 
primarily focus their attention on pleasing the other sexually, they are more in God's design than when you're just trying to please yourself sexually. Right now, our culture is driven by a sexual ethic that just says whatever fulfills and pleases you, do it. God says, here's some constraints, and even within these constraints, you seek the other person's pleasure first and foremost. Now, here's the crazy thing and the way God designed it. If you actually learn to do that, and I'm not just talking one side of the marriage, where it's like there's one good person who's always trying to please the other and the other person doesn't do their part. But if you master the art of two people trying to please the other sexually, guess what you get thrown in? Your own personal sexual fulfillment in a greater way than you could have ever imagined. But it's difficult because we all bring issues and selfishness and pain and hurt and abuse to the table. But these are the outlines that God is giving us. Now, the reason why this is so important is because we have to rediscover the biblical vision for sex because right now the church has kind of lost it, um, and many of us have shame issues dealing with, with sex. Um, many of us feel like our bodies are inherently bad, and the world, the secular world, certainly thinks that Christian sexual ethics are outdated and oppressive. But you have to be able to articulate, no, 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 Christian sexual ethics are the best They're the best there is. And the best sex you will have, the most sexual fulfillment you will have, will take place in a marriage that's committed to lifelong monogamy, doing it God's way. And actually, despite what you hear, the most satisfied satisfied sexual people in America right now are married couples who have learned to master this art. They're the most sexually satisfied. So we have to begin to rediscover this. The church doesn't have an outdated and oppressive sexual ethic. We have the most beautiful, powerful, and fulfilling one. But we've kind of lost track of it in the midst of it. So we've got to learn to talk how the Bible's talking. And the good news is, is God created sex. He wants you to have a lot of it. And he wants you to have it in the context of marriage, in lifelong commitment, in his, in his boundaries, within his boundaries. And when you do that, it's really good news because every, everyone benefits. You benefit, your spouse benefits, the children benefit, culture benefits because you have more stable families. Everything begins to flourish. That's really good news. That is not oppressive or bad or outdated sexual ethics. It's good stuff, good news. I want to close uh, by one last kind of stepping back and looking at a big picture that will hopefully tie a lot of these things in. We all have desires, we all have appetites, but there's different types of desires and appetites. I'll call some things low-level appetites and desires, some things middle-level appetites and desires, some things high-level appetites and desires. Low-level appetites and desires are things like every day, you're hungry, so you eat a sandwich and then you're not hungry anymore. You're cold, so you put on a jacket. It's like, my body has this desire not to be cold, so I need a jacket. Um, it's a really hot day and I desire, I have an appetite for a cold glass of water. It's refreshing and I feel better. Those are pretty basic, low-level appetites and desires that all human beings have. Important to note, these aren't bad. Again, we've been so influenced by past thinkers, but sometimes we could, we could think desires and appetites of the human body are inherently evil or bad. These aren't bad, they're just low. 
They're low-level stuff. You're hungry? Eat a sandwich. Then there's mid-level appetites and desires. And these are things like, I want to have a certain career path. I want to be an architect. I want to have a family one day. I want to have a big family. I want to have five, six, seven, eight kids. Anyone have more than eight kids? Good. I don't know what part of be fruitful and multiply the church doesn't get. More babies. Need more babies. You got to grow the church the old-fashioned way sometimes. You know? Church attendance is declining across the country. Christians, get at it. Mid-level desires. I want a big family. I want a small family. I want this certain career path. Uh, Then there's high-level appetites and desires. And these traditionally have been filled with like ultimate transcendent kind of things. We all have a desire to have ultimate meaning, ultimate purpose in life. We desire to have some type of religious experience. Um, We want to know God and to be known by God. Again, ultimate desires. and You have an appetite, a desire for meaning and purpose in your life. Now, these ultimate desires, these high-level things, have traditionally been bound up with the idea of God. It's very hard to get things like ultimate meaning, ultimate morality, ultimate values, ultimate purpose divorced from the idea of God. They're bound up with him. Okay. Got low-level desires, food, mid-level, family, high-level desires, meaning, purpose, God, etc. What is taking place in our culture right now is the removal of high-level desires and appetites with the removal of the idea of God. So what I mean by that is this. We no longer want God. The, the idea of God is getting pushed and marginalized. People just, just don't want it. If you go to institutions of higher education, that's going to be full blast. Uh, the idea of God, it's dead. We're, we've now gone past that as, as humans. The problem is human beings... You don't, have to be, you don't have to be a Christian to believe in this. Human beings, even when you get rid of the idea of God, still have the same desires. Every human being still has a desire for, for meaning, for purpose, for kind of transcendent values. We still desire those things. But we no longer can seek those things because we don't even think they exist. When you got rid of God, those things go with them. So what has happened? Not just one or two people. I'm talking the masses, the the majority of our culture, uh, and sadly, many Christians as well. The majority of us now are trying to satisfy high-level desires with low-level appetites. Low-level desire. So we are trying to find contentment and satisfaction for a hunger that needs to be filled with meaning, purpose, value, and God, but we are trying to fill those with low-level things, food, drink, casual sex, pornography, all of those things. And the thing is, is none of those things can ever do what the the high-level can do. You are trying to fill yourself with the wrong type of food. Now again, there's nothing wrong with a low-level desire. Food, warmth. The problem comes is that we think those things can simply take the place of the high. 
What's even more sinister than that is there are many things disguised as simple, innocent, low-level desires, but in reality, they are low-level desires that have the ability and power to enslave you. And this is how this works. If you're hungry and you eat food, it really does make you feel better, like straight up, like I'm full, I feel better now. Um, if, if you're a, a coffee addict or like an energy drink addict, you have a caffeine headache, you drink it, it feels better. It fixes it. But what slowly takes place when you remove the high and seek to fulfill it in the low is you, I mean this literally, you are literally rewiring your brain to think that happiness and contentment come from the lower level desires. And so it's very much like addiction. Um, a, a man who is addicted to pornography is actually getting satisfaction in viewing that material, and it is a pleasurable act. But, but that act only works for a little bit of time, and then sooner or later, you, you need the next hit. And this applies to anything, food, drugs, alcohol, casual sex, pornography, whatever it is. But you are telling yourself that this can take the place of the high. And your brain is actually starting to believe that that becomes the most important thing. If you've ever seen someone, and I'm sure most of you have, someone who's fully addicted to, to a chemical substance, their whole world is focused on getting their next hit, their next drink, because that is the only thing that will ease my pain. That is the only thing that can make me happy. You get God out of the picture and you seek to satisfy the high-level desires with the low, you not only will never be satisfied, you become a slave and you don't even know it. Just constantly looking for a cheap thrill. All the while, God is offering not only low-level desires like food and drink, but mid-level desires like really good, healthy sex with love and romance. And you get the high. And when all of those come together... You will be a human being that's well-ordered. Now, the answer to this, like everything, um, is the gospel and Jesus. But it's not so simple. It's not just like become a Christian and all of this gets better. Um, and the worship team could, could come forward. Um, you have to have Jesus, but you have to have your life rightly ordered. It's not like you could just have Jesus because you could be a Christian and still seek high values in the low. So my question for you today is, how are you ordered? Is Jesus your king, and is he on top? Is he the one whom you seek ultimate fulfillment and purpose from? Are you, are you seeking that first and foremost? Are you seeking the kingdom first? Because when you do that, it's, it's funny how so many other things can fall into place. Are your low-level desires in check, or where they should be, or are they out of line? So in this time, I want you to examine your life. How is it ordered? Where are you placing things? We're going to sing a song and remain seating for it because probably hardly anyone's heard it before. But it's just going to talk about how human beings search time and time again for ultimate meaning and purpose and value in things that could never satisfy. The low and the mid can never take the place of the high. When you get the high, you'll get the other things ordered right, but you have to have Jesus on top. Father God, um, 
as we listen to the song and look at the lyrics, um, I pray that we would examine our hearts and you would reveal to us where, we're, where we are incorrectly ordered. Lord, we thank you um, for your son Jesus and that in him we could find true meaning, purpose, and, and transcendent values. And I just pray that you in this series would, would heal us, that you would forgive us, that you would work with us, and we'd become more and more the image bearers you intended us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.